0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel, and today I'm pleased to welcome Ilana Gershon. Ilana is the author of Down and Out in the New Economy, How People Find or Don't Find Work Today, uh, published in 2017 by the University of Chicago Press. Ilana, welcome. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to be here. So uh, before we turn our attention to the book itself, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about uh, perhaps your own background and interests and what it is that led you to this particular project. Well,
1: I'm an anthropologist, and I know that being an anthropologist doesn't tend to mean that someone is going to be studying, hiring, in corporate America. But I realized at a certain point that I was teaching undergraduates who all of them really wanted to know how to get a job after they graduated. And this was something that was filling them with a lot of anxiety. And a lot of them were very sensible and had no desire to become a professor themselves. And so I had this question of what kind of advice could I give them? Because all I knew to do very well was how to become a professor. And so I thought, you know, one of the perks of my job is that I get a year off every seven years to do research. I get a sabbatical. And I thought, why don't I spend my sabbatical trying to figure out what is so important to my students and that I don't understand at all. And so I decided I would study hiring in corporate America. Now, I did have another agenda for studying hiring in corporate America that I'm going to admit to you, which is at that moment in anthropology, around 70% of the talks that I was going to, or the articles that I was reading, mentioned neoliberalism. And I had no idea why they were saying neoliberalism instead of capitalism. (laughs) I just did not understand what that term was doing for people. And I really wanted to know what if there was something unique about contemporary capitalism. And I wanted to figure out could I make it ethnographically rigorous? Could I find a way to see moments in which people were getting a lot of advice that was telling them to act like a neoliberal self and think about how they were responding to that advice. As a way, then that's what I mean by making it ethnographically rigorous. And seeing, and I figured because I would be studying advice in this particular way, I could compare it with earlier job manuals that we're still engaged with capitalism but giving different kinds of advice as a way of seeing what has changed. So
0: Um, that's motivating my book. So so you've you've started going down that path, but I wonder before we turn to uh, what it is that you discovered, if you would talk just a little bit more about about methodology. Who did you talk to and why them? uh, And then we'll talk about what it is that you learned from them.
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. I have to say anthropologists in general are more than probably most disciplines that I know reliant on the kindness of strangers. Mm-hmm. And I had to find ways to get to observe as much as I could about practices of hiring when hiring itself is something that people are very anxious not to have observed because They're worried about lawsuits, or they're worried that their techniques for finding people is the secret sauce for getting the company the way it is, and they don't want someone observing. Um, So I never really got to observe a hiring process, which is something that I very much regret, but was not able to do because of the ways in which corporations guard guard themselves these days, Mm -hmm. and because I just didn't get that lucky. And so what I did is I went to as many workshops for job seekers as I possibly could. And so I attended over 50 workshops on how to have a LinkedIn profile or how to create a personal brand or how to have what to put on your resume. And then from there, I was really friendly to everyone at the workshops and found job seekers to interview that way and began meeting recruiters who were giving the workshops and talking to career counselors who were also organizing the workshops and began spreading out and kind of snowball sampling techniques to find hiring managers, recruiters, people in HR, and and the career counselors to interview. And at a certain point in my field work, I also realized that quitting was really, really interesting. And so I began interviewing people who had just recently quit jobs and talked to them about their experiences doing that. And that was just really snowball sampling techniques in which I asked anybody I knew if they knew someone who would be good for me to talk to. Um, And
0: this was mostly in the Bay Area, correct?
1: This, oh yes i'm sorry this was entirely in the bay area i and 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 that was just really the god of fellowships was responsible yeah. for why i ended up in the bay area i got a fellowship at stanford to do this research and so ended up in the bay area doing the field work.
0: so so let's start talking a little bit about what it is that you discovered so there is um there's a metaphor that sort of sits at the heart of your book and the way that you characterize how people are taught to think about being a, a an applicant. Can you uh start us off by talking about that? Yes, yeah, so I I I told
1: you that I wanted to figure out a way to make people's experiences in in this day and age as rigorous as possible conceptually. And I realized that what was happening is that under capitalism, people think that they own themselves. But in earlier forms of capitalism, they thought that they owned themselves as though they were property and that they were bringing themselves to the employer and renting themselves out from nine to five. And a lot of labor battles have revolved around this metaphor. So there were a lot of arguments about how, Long you can rent yourself out to an employer during a week and and the kind of the battles won the forty hour work week eventually, and people would argue about whether an employer should pay you to have to to, to don a uniform to make yourself work ready or should you be responsible for donning the uniform, and then the employer should start paying you so a lot of the union battles and labor history revolves around arguments shaped by this metaphor. But in the 80s, people began to switch how they understood the ownership relationship. And they began to think that they owned themselves as though they were a business, that they were a bundle of skills and assets, experiences and qualities and relationships that had to be consciously managed and continually enhanced. And that meant that when you entered into a hiring relationship when you were hired by someone and had an employment contract that you were in a, in a business-to-business contract, that you were offering market-specific solutions or a, in a temporary way to a business.
0: So, and and so, sort view of you, you, you write that one of the implications of this is, is that job seekers are uh, taught to think about what their, their brand is. Right. Yes. That, 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 that branding now is something that individuals need to do in addition to large corporations trying to sell products. And you write about that. That, uh, and I'm quoting you now. Branding encourages you to focus on a person's supposedly unchanging qualities and to yes. ignore contexts. So, can you talk a little bit about about what's going on there and 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 what you think that means? So, personal branding was one of
1: the things that really made me feel a bit like I was Alice in Wonderland doing this research, I have to admit. Um, and and I still remember being in a personal branding um, workshop with someone who had, had, had gone to the workshop because it was a motivational speaker, didn't know that it was going to be personal branding, and turned to me and wasn't clear whether branding meant what you do to cattle or how you market objects. And he was like, wait. This isn't making sense. Why are we talking now about branding ourselves as though we are cattle? Um, but uh. what this metaphor of thinking of yourself as a business has done is it's let you think that it makes sense that if you if if businesses have a brand, you can also market yourself as though you have a brand too. And what the what this workshop does is give what the workshops all talked about, we're having a particular set of techniques for this, which is that you think about three or four traits that you have that are supposed to be linked to your authentic self, and then you make sure that all your online and offline interactions reflect these three or four qualities. Um, qualities like detail-oriented or um, easygoing or various things, and I, I have to admit, like when I heard the things that people were coming up with, I always felt like there was kind of an invisible bank of 50 or 60 words that people were drawing from, and they're words that you really could never use, and so at some point, I at, interviewed someone and asked them, well, what words don't fit in a personal brand, and he said, well, diva, <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and, and he said, or liking the outdoors, because everybody likes the outdoors. So you can't have that as your personal brand. So these personal brands are also supposed to mark you as unique and distinctive, but only unique and distinctive in a very standardized and rigid way, right? You can't be diva and be unique in that way. And... Um, Yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say, and so you asked me about kind of how these are supposed to exist outside of context. And I think that that's a lot of what my my book is about is what are the moments in which for people context matters and when it doesn't. And people, in in creating the personal brand, it was a way to present yourself as being consistent and predictable in a context where if the metaphor is right, you're supposed to constantly be enhancing yourself. And so you're constantly supposed to be transforming yourself. How does the business know what it's going to be hiring? Well, the personal brand is supposed to supply the answer to that. It is how you manage yourself by these qualities that is supposed to be the thing that reassures the business that is hiring you that they're getting something predictable. And that's without context, right? Yeah.
0: Um, there, there are a couple of sort of, of, of interesting examples from some of the, the, the coaches or uh, counselors who you listened in on um, uh, Ramina, if I'm remembering her name yes. right, as a career counselor, she talked about uh, techniques, branding strategies for former prisoners, uh, which I thought, I mean, at least for me, sort of was was interesting and in, in getting some insight into this particular way of thinking of of at least these folks who are trying to sell themselves as being helpful in the job market, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about 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 how that plays out? Uh, in her thinking about prisoners, and maybe any any implications you think that go beyond that.
1: I thought that she was so clever. I have to say, I really loved her very imaginative way of using personal branding, because she felt that she was talking to people who felt that they were deeply inadequate and had nothing not didn't have very much to offer employers, and that there was a lot of bias against them. And what she was trying to do was think about the ways in which they could reimagine themselves as having a lot to offer. So she would talk to them about what got them into the situation very briefly and then ask them things like if they had been buying drugs and that's why they had, and that's why they had gotten into trouble. She would say, well, how did you know who was the right drug dealer to buy from? And the person would say, well, I'm really good at reading people. And she said, put that down. Put that down as one of your authentic traits. Because it doesn't matter whether you're really good at reading people, if they're drug dealers or in general. What matters is that you're really good at reading people. And so she took this way of understanding how people learn how to manage systems, told them that that's what was valuable, and that—that's what they should build on in turning to other systems that they would then have to manage. I thought that was really imaginative.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and so much of—of—of of, of, again, at least the people who you—you—you you, you listen to and talk to um, seem to—the pattern that emerges is that it is not your your concrete skills or experience that are necessarily the the things that you should be using to pitch yourself to an employer. It is that that larger set of traits, those almost personality characteristics that may emerge from your experience, but it's not, it's not at least what historically were taught to make you valuable in the labor market. Is that, is that question making any sense? Yeah,
1: I think there you're pointing to something else that I began to realize about what hiring was, which is that you have to master a number of different ways of presenting yourself. You have to master a number of different genres. Um, can you hear what's going on in the background?
0: Yep, I just heard a little static, but I think we're good.
1: Okay, so we are good. Um, yes. Um, my, my husband is running a very, very loud blender in the background. My apologies. He should know better. Um, and it, it's such a loud blender that he has to put on... Noise cutting earphones, noise muffling earphones to uh, headphones to, to do this. Okay, he stopped. So I was talking about personal branding as being one of the many things that you're supposed to do. No. So it's not that you don't engage with skills anymore. You still have to present yourself as someone who has a lot of skills and talk about your experience, but you're talking about your experience in much more calculated ways than you did before when you thought of yourself as, a prop, as property in which you were listing the history that that property had, had, had gone through. Um, now you're trying to imagine what is specific for that particular business that it might be interested in. And so you're still doing all these things, but it's added another way in which you're supposed to present yourself, which is personal branding. Now I have to say, this is something that career counselors talked about and hiring managers never did. And honestly, recruiters and people in HR never did either. So I was really fascinated by the fact that no one on the hiring side seemed to care about anybody's personal brand. They never told me, oh, I called them in because they seemed to have a wonderful personal brand. or And they never mentioned any of the techniques that go into personal branding as something that they noticed. And so personal branding seemed relevant to the career counselors and often to job seekers who when i would tell them that i was skeptical about personal branding would reassure me that it was really important right. but did not seem to matter on the hiring side as far as i could tell
0: and is your i mean is your sense that that part of the career counselor's fixation on this is i mean i guess i wonder how much of this is just the law of numbers right there lar- larger number of people with roughly comparable skill sets needing to find new ways to distinguish themselves in perhaps uh, a market with diminished opportunities, so this becomes a way for them to help people mark themselves as distinct, even if they perhaps are not
1: oh yeah that's that's interesting i i had I thought that they were coming up with a solution for a different thing, which is that there's now people are being told all the time that they have to worry about their online presentation, right. so they have to worry about their facebook, they have to worry about their Twitter. Um, they, they have to one think about how they tweet and expect that anything they do online is going to be found by a potential employer and the question then is how do you manage that as a job seeker and personal branding gives you an a a pattern that you are a, a kind of process that you are supposed to apply in order to be able to determine what you're going how you 're going to do this and how you 're going to judge what you should and shouldn't do. And so I thought career counselors were coming up with a way to address that at the same time that they were finding a way to explain this metaphor uh, more concretely to people and encourage them to start applying this metaphor in shaping the ways in which they were applying for jobs.
0: Yeah. Um, and, this, and this plays out sort of in an interesting way in a, a, a woman you talked to called Judy, um, who was I? I think very much the exception to to this, in that she thought that for her, uh, the virtue of building a personal brand for herself wasn't that she would identify and present her authentic self, but it was that a way for her to create a persona so that she could create some distance between who she was as an individual and who she was once she entered the labor market.
1: I found that really an interesting interview because she, I, I was. Interviewing a number of women who were moving between working at registers and working as salespeople and working retail and working in pink collar jobs as administrative assistants in and 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 office help in various ways. And these were kind of older women who were bouncing back and forth between these two kinds of jobs. both of these kinds of jobs require a lot of emotional labor, right? They require that you perform as a particular person radiating certain kinds of emotions and inspiring other people, hopefully, to feel the right emotions. And this is something that Arlie Hoschild writes about a lot in talking about stewardesses and waitresses. And She also talks about bill collectors that no one ever seems to mention enough about how you can also... Do hostile kind of emotional labor too, but she talks about how this is a way, this is a protection mechanism that people can be who they really want to be outside of work and create a personal, um, b- create a boundary between the work persona and the, the and the self, and that's what this woman was describing personal branding as being. And so when I asked her. Oh, you mean like a waitress? She said, exactly. That's exactly what I mean. And that's how I understood. She was bringing an older understanding of how work functions into interpreting personal branding.
0: Do Do you have any read on why you didn't hear that from more people?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. So... I, a lot of my interviews seem to be um, with people who are white-collar workers, and they seem to be taking this advice as very pragmatic advice that was going to help them get a job. And they weren't very critical of the advice for the most part, Mm -hmm. and she was one of the few people who was offering at least a different take on the advice, and I think she was doing it because she was coming from a different class
0: background. And she was very conscious that she was. Yep. Yeah. Um, that sort of, that, that critical awareness just sort of playing out in the way such things do.
1: Well, I mean, it's um, also, it didn't fit her... So a couple of,
0: awareness. a couple... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, part of, part
1: of why coming from yeah. a different class background gives you a critical gives you a different kind of way of reflecting on the advice is that it doesn't fit your background. A lot of the advice that people were giving about LinkedIn profiles would right. make no sense for people working in the
0: trades yeah so I mean let's talk about that for a little bit um in in both two ways one is that um it's, it's a, a, you, you report that a lot of your subjects re- expressed confusion about what LinkedIn was good for and how it functions, um, and I think that that's something that I know that sort of people who study social networks and online networks um, have been been trying to make sense of for, for quite some while. So I guess the first question is, what is LinkedIn good for? And then second is picking up that question that you just alluded to there is that that are there, what, is, what does all of this mean for blue-collar workers?
1: So, I find the question what is LinkedIn good for a a confusing question for me to answer because LinkedIn is good for whatever your particular Uh community is using it for, right? And so part of the problem with job advice in general is that it's often ignoring the specific norms and practices of a particular industry. For a particular community of practitioners, or a particular company. And it's trying to create the most standardized advice that you can to cut across most people's uh, practices. And LinkedIn is good for whatever the people who you are trying to interact with use it for. So one of the things that LinkedIn has turned out in my research to be really good That it works as a recruiter database. And so, if recruiters are using it to find people that they want to to find, then LinkedIn is very useful for them. And as a job seeker, it's useful for you if what you're trying to do is be available and attractive to recruiters. If the jobs you're looking for don't require recruiters, and, and, and the companies don't use recruiters, then LinkedIn isn't good for you in that way. Um, one of the things that people found is that a lot of people don't respond to LinkedIn messages. And that you often had to switch so you could use LinkedIn to locate someone, but then you had to find, figure out their email or find another way to contact them and linkedin would be good for people to to communicate with if other people would respond to the linkedin messages so it's it's really when 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 people kind of ask what linkedin is good for they're often focusing on the technology and not the social practices that surround it so that's interesting and social practices are linked to communities
0: yeah so as 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 in at least in this narrow instance a uh, database rather than something that we would think of as a a a social media network or networking tool.
1: That's what I found in my research. And I I imagine you have listeners who are like, "Oh no, I use it yep. for all sorts of other things." What I'm trying to say is, "Yes, your community <laughs> does."
0: Right. Right. Um so one of the things I asked you about that you had talked about was was burgeoning new networks for blue-collar workers, for people who are not among those for for whom sort of LinkedIn necessarily makes sense at the moment. Can you talk a little bit about what, what those are and what they look like and how they're functioning? Well, so that's really
1: interesting. I can't tell you actually much about how they're functioning, but one of the things that I did because... I was in the Bay Area. I like—I didn't like thinking about this as Silicon Valley, um, because Silicon Valley gives you a very specific understanding of how hiring works, and I think a lot of what I found was true for most of the United States, and I made sure that I interviewed people who were hiring and, and, and looking for jobs outside of the Bay Area to make sure that I was right about this. Um, but one of the things that was true about being in the Silicon Valley is that there are all these people trying to come up with new companies and new websites and new, new, new sites that can fill needs for people. And I started interviewing a lot of the founders of these companies because I was interested in what what neoliberal logics Led them to think would be solutions that would be necessary, and one of the ones that I can, and a lot of people were talking about how they didn't like LinkedIn LinkedIn was too limited in particular ways, so that they were creating companies that would fill in the gaps or do something better than the way LinkedIn does it and so LinkedIn was kind of their b that they were targeting um, their their death star that they were trying to to get to attack and One of them was a company called Workhands, which was trying to find a way to connect um, people in the trades with each other and find a way for people in the trades to show what they could do. And the way that one of the founders describes coming up with this is that his brother is an electrician and takes photographs of all his projects before they get buried under concrete or they get put behind the walls of a building. And he's really proud of these projects and he has them on his phone and he would send them to his brother. And his brother thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if he could have something that looked like a resume that just showed the, these projects that had been successful. And so he, cre- he helped with so other of his friends to create work hands which was a different way to show what the products of your work are than the way LinkedIn allows you to.
0: So, so people are. So this is, are of course, the guy who this. he really is a business. Yes. Um, he re- and he really is a business rather than merely being encouraged to present himself as if he's a, a business.
1: Well, I think of him not like you can say that he's really a business, but he's also a craftsman. Right? And maybe thinking about him as a craftsman allows you to kind of, that metaphor allows you to understand his relationship to work in new ways.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm Stephen Pimper at the New Books Network Public Policy Channel. We are speaking with Alana Gershon, author of Down and Out in the New Economy How People Find or Don't Find Work Today. Um, so, Alana, as we've, we've uh, talked about, uh, your your fieldwork was in the Bay Area. I'm wondering if, if, I hope this doesn't put you too much on the spot, but sort of as an anthropologist who has spent all this time looking at this particular segment of, of the labor market in the Bay Area, I mean, do you feel that, that that's given you some sort of insight into what is going on there, at least with with that particular segment of job seekers and employers that maybe doesn't show up in in uh, more traditional data sets, you, you feel like you're walking away the very particular kind of insight.
1: I worried about that a lot, um, <laughs> right? Because because a lot of the pushback that I was getting in doing fieldwork and talking about some of the things that I was finding was, look, this is really specific to how things work in the Bay Area. And so I started, in, I, I didn't do the same amount of detailed field work, but I did start talking to people in other parts of the country to find out whether the job-seeking advice that I was getting and the practices that I was hearing about happened elsewhere as well. Every feedback that I've gotten is that, it, that what I was talking about was not specific to the, to the Bay Area. And there's some things that I understand to be very specific to the Bay Area, some of which I just didn't write about because I thought I didn't want to mark my, my field work in that way. Others I wrote about to, to signal, look, this is unusual. So one of the things that kept coming up as I was trying to figure out this question is the length of time you are supposed to spend at jobs. And what's interesting is now you're supposed to only be a temporary solution, and in the Bay Area, people are only supposed to spend two or three years at a job, and then they're supposed to find a a job at another company. And this was not the length of time for other parts of the country. In the Midwest, I was told it was between five to eight years. The East Coast was something more like between four to seven. And so people would tell me that when they were trying to get jobs in the Midwest from the Bay Area, they would get feedback that they were job hoppers and that people didn't want to look at them. And they'd be really frustrated because this was, of course, the norm for that particular region. And the opposite worked as opposite thing happened as well, which is that people in the Bay Area would see someone who had been at a company for eight years and say, oh, they're too set in their ways. We're not sure we want to hire them. So these things that are were read as signals without paying attention to why someone might stay at a job or leave a job right like they they weren't paying attention to the larger reasons that someone might be make, doing the strategies that they're doing
0: um and you know obviously sort of 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 very what could it, confusion-making and frustrating for for anyone on the job market because those aren't, um, those, those, in the way that you describe them, those are cultural products, right? They're not necessarily rooted in any sophisticated analysis of what makes for a good employee. It's, well, this is what we've collectively, arbitrarily decided is right, and so this is what we're going to impose on people, uh, as if things aren't hard and complicated enough as it is. Um, So... um, so when we sort of work our way and and toward toward finishing up our our conversation, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about um the 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 end of the book and the conclusion. You get um a little bit more reflective and and step back a bit and and talk about um you know what some of the people who you've talked with think about what this means and what this might mean for their children. Um, can you? I mean, what 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 after after all of this work. What are the ways in which it matters to you? What do you take away with in terms of of what you think is is important about what people should understand about what's happening out in the world?
1: You were breaking up. Could you say the last sentence
0: again? Yes. What is it that you think is is important uh, about, about what's happening out in the world? What should people know about what you've learned from the work that you've done?
1: When I wrote the conclusion, I had a particular problem on my hands. The conclusion was the hardest thing for me to write. And it was the hardest thing for me to write because I had not had a particularly critical voice up until the moment of the conclusion. I was trying to explain the lay of the land, and I was not... And 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 talking about the conundrums that this particular metaphor leaves people with, mm-hmm. but I was not thinking. I was not. I was thinking all the time about how things might change, but I was not writing about that, and I was not um, being as scathing as someone ranting at a bar about how the system is really not working for most people would <laughs> would, would what they would say. And I felt that my conclusion, I'm not a good ranter, but I felt that my conclusion might be the space in which I started talking about some of these things. And so I started trying to talk about, well, we have this system, is there a way for workers to find ways to argue so that their lives can be a bit better in this situation? This seems to be a system that privileges smaller and smaller number of people, that there are larger groups of people who are having more problems with the ways in which hiring is working, and that there are more and more people who are having problems with the way hiring is working as they age, which is also something very striking for me, that it's, you are no longer privileged just because of class and race and gender, but you're now privileged because of age in particular ways. And so everyone risks, or most people, not everyone, most people risks facing the problems that I was looking at. And so I was trying to think, what is there in this logic that might allow people to make claims on employers that can give them some kind of benefits, that can make their lives better? And one of the things that I thought of was maybe we could focus more on recruitment brands, that if we're... If, <laughs> people are stuck creating personal brands maybe companies need to pay attention to the fact that employees are circling out of the companies at faster rates and so they need to realize that if they're the people that they're not hiring in this round might be someone they want to hire in 2 years or 3 years Or 10 years, and maybe they should treat them well in the hiring process because most people described ways in which people (laughs) were being treated appallingly when they were being rejected. I mean, as long as you're getting the job offer, people will treat you well, but in that process, until you get the job offer, people are not being responsive, they're not explaining what's happening, and then when they reject you, you often don't know that you've been rejected. All the ways in which hiring is really frustrating from the job seekers' point of view was something that you could make an argument that companies need to stop doing because they need to understand how they're treating their labor force is going to matter for, in, for the foreseeable future in terms of what labor force they can get. Um, I don't think that that's very satisfying, quite honestly. Like, there was not much wiggle room (laughs) that I could see in how we could use this particular metaphor to benefit workers. And I talked to, and I had these really striking conversations with people who said, look, this is a system that is forcing you to live such unstable lives that I don't want it for my children because I want to become a grandparent. And I don't know how you can plan to have a kid if you are switching careers so. Long. I mean, switching careers and switching jobs so often.
0: And it is, it's you know, sort of hard not to to wonder how much of that is simply a a, a means by which uh, we we normalize that kind of insecurity and yes. and diminish people's sense that that is that is that is wrong. It's unfair. It's unjust. It makes their lives more complicated than they should resist it. We've now, you know, sort of of building entire industries devoted to saying, oh, no, 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 this is a virtue. This is good. This is part yes. of what makes you a compelling candidate. Um, And that is troubling and hard to yes. know, you know, how we how we wind up confronting that. Um, so tell us a little bit about what it is that that you are either working on now or thinking about working on next.
1: Well, so one of the things that I'm really interested in right now is how people use the classification of generations of being millennial or Gen X or Baby Boomer to describe the ways people are acting in their workplaces. And I'm really fascinated by this for a number of reasons. I'm fascinated by this because it feels kind of like a horoscope sign situation to me, right? Right where you can know how someone is behaving because they're a Pisces, and so you can know how someone is behaving because they're a millennial, right? It, it erases context, it erases historical trajectory in, in particular ways that kind of resonate with a lot of the ways in which they were being ignored in my fieldwork. But one of the other reasons I'm really interested in this is when I was doing this research on hiring, Not many people were critical of the logics that they were encountering. I found this really depressing. Like, I really wanted to see what are the moments in which people would like things to change. And they would like to get jobs, but they weren't ready to criticize the larger structural logics, the precarity that they were being told to accept. They weren't ready to be critical of that. But I realize that millennials are seen as the people who feel really at home in this neoliberal logic, that they're really comfortable with imagining themselves as a business, and that the people who are unhappy with millennials are also tacitly criticizing these larger structural frameworks. And so I want to see, I want to analyze that. I'm becoming, and I am I think fundamentally an anthropologist of the kvetching about other people. I have a high tolerance for listening to people (laughs) kvetching about other people, and I want to make that useful in seeing how people use generation as a category to complain about why people are doing what they're doing and hopefully get some insight into capitalism and how people live it that way. An
0: anthropology of kvetching.
1: Yes. No, so catching about other people. I actually yeah, not others. hiring made me more specific. Uh, the The hiring fieldwork made me realize that I am very picky about the kind of fetching that I have high tolerance for. It's not just any
0: catching. Um, I think I think it's a fascinating question, honestly. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so we have been speaking with Alana Gershon. She's the author of a new book from. Um, University of Chicago Press just this year called Down and Out in the New Economy, How People Find or Don't Find Work Today. I hope you'll all check it out. Um, Ilana, thank you so much for your time today.
1: I have been so looking forward to this interview. Thank you very much.